So this is Pangea, and I'm your host, Jacqueline Schiff, coming to you slightly exhausted on uh, the 7th, the day after the elections. Um, and I think my guests are might be a little groggy, too. Um, but I'm talking to Mark Goldberg, uh, the editor of UN Dispatch and PSI Healthy Lives, and Tom Murphy, uh, who blogs at A View from the Cave and is the deputy editor of PSI Healthy Lives. They both write and blog for a number of other outlets um, and are co-founders of the Development and Aid World News Service, an international um, news clipping service. Does that about sum it up, guys? Uh, it does, although the PSI blog, this is Mark, uh, um, the, the PSI blog, we rebranded it last month. Now it's Impact Blog. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. So formerly PSI Healthy Lives, now Impact yes. Blog. There you go. Um, Great. Well, let's, uh, you know, thanks for uh, hopping on this call with me day after the election. And I think it's unavoidable. I got to ask you guys about that. Um, There was one of the things I noticed is, you know, there was lots of coverage about and, and people tweeting about like voting conditions and long lines and comparing it to. Uh, you know, third world conditions in some instances and, and, you know, generally, uh, a lot of people complaining with how the election was run. What, what's your take on that? Uh, so this is Mark. Um, well, I, you know, I can't say I've ever voted, uh, outside of the United States. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, so we're recording this a day after the alleged uh, election, a day I like to call Groggy Wednesday, and they're still counting votes in Florida. I mean, that's crazy. You would think after 2000, that they would have updated their system. And I know in his acceptance speech last night, Obama spared a line about how it was unacceptable that people had to wait standing in line for seven hours just to vote. Uh, so uh, hopefully, uh, you know, things will uh, you know, get better, but, you know, it's hard to tell right now. Yeah, and I have to say, I, I um, <clears throat> the lines near me were quite short, but... I um, admittedly messed up my um, process since I recently moved to Massachusetts to apply here, and then I didn't get my absentee ballot. And then by luck, um, well, I can't say much luck, but because of Hurricane Sandy, my um, family's uh, power was out, so I was supposed to be able to do this like online voting, email voting type thing. And I registered, and, and nothing came of it. So um, I have to admit that I was really unable to vote. Um, which was interesting because trying to go through this this New Jersey system and, and it uh, it essentially failed. So I'm curious. My, I know my brother, who lives in New York City, tried to do the same thing and it didn't work for him. So uh, that was at least my personal experience of uh, not being able to vote and it was not for waiting in lines, but because of uh, a hurricane. Oh, that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah, and I remember uh, people were uh, talking about before you know had doing something electronic like that. I think people were like skeptical that it was going to work, you know, and and that everyone would be able to get their votes in. So that's that's unfortunate, Tom. Yeah, I mean, you know, New Jersey's a well-decided state. It was going to go blue to Obama, and the, yeah. where where I grew up was actually a really really red county. So basically, no Democrats run. Um, so it, you know, it's it was more of a civic action than it was in terms of deciding who was going to win because all of that was already determined with or without my vote. So um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it makes it makes me feel a little bit better, but I still would have liked to be able to vote. Yeah, yeah, so, something that we need to sort out. Um, let's uh, move on. I definitely want to ask you guys about Dawn's and your experience with that, but I think let's uh, before we get to that, 
um, you know, not, I don't think there are a lot of people who grow up and think like, ah, I want to be a humanitarian blogger, although may, maybe some people do. But how, how did you get into covering these topics? Go for it, Tom. Yeah, I mean, I, so, I mean, mine's a bit of a, a serendipitous journey, and I, I'll, I can give like the very short version is that, um, you know, I blogged when I went and lived in Kenya. Um, it was a really conscious choice to use blogging as a way to, to, stay in touch, but then also, um, kind of digest what was, what was happening externally. Uh, and, and to do it in a way that rather than sending it, the always thing I say is that people who you don't see for a long time, you get these like long digest emails that cover like months of their life and they're many, many paragraphs long. And, um, I personally end up skimming through and maybe only read parts of it because it just is so dense. And I, I wanted to avoid that, but I also wanted to use my experience to kind of show how, um, you know, life living in a different place is not, <clears throat> there are exciting points and there are really mundane things. And I wanted to be able to bring out both sides of it. And that's how I kind of fell into it and then continued with it when I came home as a way to stay in touch with international development. And I've uh, found that it's it's been a really interesting space to, to explore. And it's, and it's been a space that I... I continue to do it because I think that there's uh, a need to have more uh, different ways of discussing aid and development, um, which is also gets into why, you know, why Dawn's now exists. Um, and so that's been the, the, you know, it's, it's been this kind of grand experiment. How, how can, uh, how can we communicate and tell more stories, spread more information? Yeah. And, and Mark, uh, what's your story? Um, so arguably the uh, person on this planet most responsible for my career as a UN blogger mm -hmm. is John Bolton. Um, he, uh, I was a journalist in uh, the uh, at the American Prospect Magazine, a political monthly in Washington D.C. when John Bolton was nominated to become uh, the ambassador to the United Nations. And I just sort of covered that beat and, and covered his nomination battle. And then once he was, uh, once, once he was, uh, appointed in a re, he got a recess appointment. Mm -hmm. I went up to the UN and did a lot of reporting around how, what his tenure as UN ambassador was like. And I think that, um, caught, that, that I think caught the attention of a lot of people in UN circles. Uh, and I was writing and blogging pretty, uh, pretty regularly for the American Prospect. And, uh, around that time, uh, the, um, United Nations Foundation was thinking about, you know, trying to start a blog and I helped them manage, manage that early on and, and became sort of more of a, uh, you know, full-time sort of UN-focused blogger because of the support that UN Dispatch receives from the United Nations Foundation. So that's the uh, the short story. Well, John John Bolton's not a not a bad person to have on your side, w whether he knows it or not, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, okay, so uh, I think it was about a year ago that you guys started uh, the Dawn's Digest, or maybe a little over a year ago at this point. You know, there are obviously other global news aggregation services out there. Uh, what made you decide to start Dawn's? I mean, I, you know, for, for me, I, I reached out to Mark because I, I found that living um, living in Kenya, some of the various constraints to accessing news were bandwidth of sites. And that was the biggest one. I, I, I some, That was the biggest one because 
it ended up costing time. And so if you're and and you pay for everything when you're paying for internet, you're paying for the megabyte, you're paying for time if you're in a public space. So the sooner you can get information and the, the easier and the, the less amount of data possible is the most efficient way to get it. And there really wasn't a way to do it. And so the the initial thought was to to provide something that was really low bandwidth and email was what popped out. Make it really easy to read. I mean the other part is that there are a lot of places to get humanitarian news, but they're not all necessarily in a single place. And I, th- I think that there are some that are now doing a little bit more, but they're still relatively new, but the, there still isn't a single place. I mean, I will even admit I don't go to one single place to get all my news, but that's also because we put it together. But there's just so much out there as opposed to if I was to look in American politics, you know, I, I could read the New York Times and get a really good understanding of what's happening. Um, if I wanted to know what was going on in Africa, New York Times is not the only place where I can look and really get an, a full beat of what's happening. And so this is a, to fill what we saw as that gap. And and what we found, actually, interestingly enough, is that the uh, the people that responding right now most to this are not, in fact, the people that are necessarily in the field, although some are. It's really the headquarters staff who are feeling very disconnected from what's happening in the countries and in the places they're supporting, they want to know what's what's going on, but they're so their heads are so buried into a single topic that they aren't always able to uh, to pull in this information. And so, this has been a way to make it nice and easy and, and quick to read and a way to stay in touch. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, just just to add, I think what makes our model unique is not just our uh, news clips, Mm. which we put together every day, uh, actually twice a day, uh, once for people in Europe and Africa and once for people, uh, you know, in in the United States, um, is, is that we use the revenue that we generate from our subscription sales to support a grant program for humanitarian minded journalists, bloggers, photographers, documentarians, we like to call them storytellers because we don't like to exclude any uh, sort of one media or not. And, you know, this is really, I think, what, what keeps us going. And, 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 you know, I think Tom and I both couldn't do this if it was, if it was just sort of a regular uh, corporate enterprise. We, we wanted to, you know, make this a social enterprise and, and make this a, uh, an, a method and a new way, hopefully, if, if this works and we think it is and we think it will, uh, create a new sort of model to support uh, journalism from the developing world. So, you know, the the story is still being told, but uh, we think we're on to something. Yeah. Well, and uh, just going back a little bit, I think, you know, one of the other things um, you you mentioned, you're putting out um, two editions a day. What's the what's the process that goes into that? Because, frankly, what I'll say is, uh, you know, one of the services I see you guys providing is today in 2012 to get a full sense of the news. You have to be a very active news consumer. Um, As you were saying, Tom, you can't just go to one source. So what's the process behind the scenes and, you know, how how many sources are you reviewing? How much time does it take you? How does that work? Sure, sure. I think the reason that uh, Tom and I are able to do this uh, is because both of us, uh, we we sort of live on the Internet. You know, we're, we're reading and writing and tweeting all day long. Um, and we have a sense of what news 
would be important and relevant to our community, to the humanitarian-minded community, and what might be extraneous. And so we're like sort of a, you know, human aggregators, human filters, not sort of you know an automated Google News uh, sort of feed. But, but you know, we, we give this thing a human touch because we follow these stories obsessively uh, all day long. So just the mechanics of it are, are you know, pretty simple. I mean, we, uh, you know, start in the, or, you know, in, in the start of the day, we open up a Google Doc that we both share for each other. And we're, uh, as we see stories throughout the day that we think might be relevant for the next edition of Don's Digest, we just fill in the, our, our Google, uh, Google Doc. And then at the end of the day, we send it out. So that's, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. It's not, the, the technology is not complex at all. One thing that we found is that, um, you know, some of the, we're now providing this to some organizations and they had these previous kind of like robo aggregation tools and they, and they were finding that it, it, um, was just giving them so much information. Um, one of the places we work with had this, like, they sent us this hundred page digest of, of news stories that they got each morning and they had one of their staffers had to literally go through that every day. And bring it down to about twenty or so stories, um, and so we're finding is that you know th- that we're using stuff like RSS feeds and all that kind of stuff that are, are slightly newer technologies. But the fact is, is it is like Mark is saying, um, you know, just going right through it and, and having that uh, yeah. that human eye. So it does I mean that that part does take time, but we're finding that that's the value, and that's what uh, people are appreciating. Yeah, absolutely, and. I think one of the the interesting things is there there are so many tools, especially with like social media, that will promise to kind of get you to, you know, exactly what you're looking for or whatever. But at least in my experience, I've just found that unless there's a person actually doing it, it it never quite you know refines things the way you want to do it. And it could be a personal bias on my part, but you know, I just I, I find that doing things manually is often kind of the best way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. You know, it, it, it's, I think, like Tom said, I think that's just, the, that's our big added value is that we know the subject areas and we kind of know what our community would find relevant and interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and we just, and, you know, plug it in. Yeah. And, and so when you say community, um, I thought it was interesting. I think, um, Mark, uh, or no, I think it was Tom that mentioned um, that it's people uh, at headquarters that are, are finding this an interesting service. Who's part of your community? I mean, it ranges from um, USAID to um, small NGOs in the West Coast to um, the Overseas Development Institute in London, uh, and and now actually, and now we have a um, a university partner or subscriber, so um, a group of students get the uh, get the digest each each day, and and it's actually becoming now a part of their uh, their classroom learning. They have assignments based on it. Um, so it's a, it's a it's a really and then, and obviously there are individual subscribers too. So it's it's a it's pretty wide range of um, of people and groups and and sizes and, and needs. The catch-all phrase I, I like to use is global news junkies, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's really people who um, like to obsessively follow news from the developing world. Like you know we we very consciously exclude you know, news about, you know, Europe's financial crisis. And we very consciously include, uh, you know, news from the Sahel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people who would be, you know, who like to read and follow uh, news from the developing world as it pertains to human rights, international development, and global health. 
I mean, those are our, those are our communities. So a lot of NGO people, like Tom said, a lot of U.S. government, uh, workers, particularly at USAID, uh, and the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance and, uh, think tank types and, you know, everyday people. Uh, who who just you know follow this news for for one reason or another? I think um, people listening, and certainly this is something I think a lot about. W- what are some of the challenges um, with attracting an audience, you know, like you've described, who's thirsty for international news? You know, how, how do you go about finding those people? And and do you ever feel like I guess you reach a point and it's like hard to you know, break beyond that box and, and, and find other people that are interested in this type of news? Well, so, I mean, we started, just because Tom and I have fairly sizable social media followings and already had a blog, we started with our with our own networks. And what we found is that people would recommend the service to others. Uh, and that, and, and so it's sort of our, our biggest breakthroughs have been when, Someone just forwarded them the digest. They said, Oh, this is great. How can I get it? And then they would forward it to their coworkers and, and colleagues. Um, so that, I mean, it's, it's been a word of mouth thing mostly. We haven't done too much conscious, um, marketing, mm. uh, so far. The one of the ways we were able to track subscribers early on was how we decided to give away our grant funding. Um, we essentially had a, a contest. And had our subscribers, uh, vote on who should get the grant funding. And that attracted a lot more people who wanted to participate in the voting process. So that, that helped boost our subscriber roles early on. Um, that was, I think, a, a useful tactic. And recently, uh, you came out with an app. What, uh, you know, why, if, if someone's a subscriber to Dawn's, why should they, download the app or what does the app offer the app, the app offers essentially i mean it's it builds off of what we're already hand picking and then what we've done is we've uh determined a few rss feeds that we think are really important as a as a form of of let's say strengthening or looking up what we're already finding so you have the top what we think what we are thinking and we believe to be the the most important stories related to given topic areas um, and then below that, you will get further news that sometimes we might miss because honestly, like like we said, we're doing handpicking and, and obviously we won't be able to see every single thing every single time. Um, and then also it, it's it's people have wider interests. Uh, and that's why we also built in a search feature, which allows people to target on keywords. If they're interested in transparency, they can have a transparency search term and every article that comes up with transparency, they're going to get those articles, um, if they're interested in cholera or a specific country, they're, they're going to be able to find those things. And so it's really about um, getting into the hands of people further. And this builds on the fact that we know that a lot of our readers are in um, Western countries in the global north. So these are people that are going to be largely having smartphones. So it makes more sense to provide them options that are not just email. Uh, we all get a lot of emails and we recognize that, you know, in the morning when you have 20, 30, 40 new emails, it's very easy to, to want to delete them or not pay as much attention. So this, uh, for some who might not want to read it on email but still want to have this information, can move in a different direction. And and I'd say, just adding on to that, one of the, the reasons we decided to, to build an app was to attract a new audience as well. 
Um, and this is actually, this is probably our, our big gamble. You know, we, we, the fun, the, the money that we haven't given away in grants, we've put into developing this app and our, um, hope and our expectation, uh, and our, you know, the, the, the risk we took was, was, uh, out of the, you, uh, out of the assumption that, um, you know, this, that having an app would attract a, a whole new audience that might not have stumbled across our website. Uh, so we're trying to reach a new audience through this app. Right. Um, and, and speaking of those, um, the, the grants that you have uh, given, what's the status of that? Um, I think you've assigned one round. Is that right? One round. Uh, you can go, yeah. Uh, sorry. Um, sure. I, I can answer this one. Uh, yes. Yeah, so we um, did uh, – we've given away uh, three grants. The first grant – that we gave away, we did um, in January, and this was uh, our um, subscriber-driven process. Mm-hmm. We uh, just put out a call for applications and said we're going to give two five hundred dollar. We call them micro storytelling grants away. Uh, we knew that this isn't enough money to you know fully report on a crisis around the world, but maybe it can help at the margins. Maybe it could help pay for a translator. Maybe it could buy a new lens for your camera. Uh, that sort of thing. So we put out a call for applications uh, on our website. We got about 300 applications really, really quickly within two weeks. turns out there was a real thirst for this kind of uh, funding. Um, of those 300 applications, about 75 were really, really good and would would be just, just phenomenal. But out of those 75, we whittled it down to 10 truly exceptional uh, applications, and then we turned over those 10 finalists to our community of email subscribers. They're the ones, you know, that are funding this after all through their subscriptions. And so we, we put it to them to vote on the, the two finalists. And the two that won uh, were really interesting. We had a, a Yemeni female journalist who uh, was reporting from the conflict in southern Yemen, but reporting sort of from the perspective of IDPs, uh, displaced by the con- people displaced by the conflict. Mm-hmm. She wrote uh, a story in Arabic and, and then a story in English for an American news magazine uh, that uh, just told a really interesting and untold story about the plight of IDPs caught in the conflict in southern Yemen. The other grantee was a, a photographer in the Philippines who was documenting uh, poor women in the Philippines living with breast cancer. And she, her, she has this photo project, this really, what, uh, really profoundly humane, effectively topless photos of women with mastectomies, and has uh, a really, you know, powerful images and, and a powerful narrative uh, to go along with it. So um, we were really pleased that these two finalists won, but we would have been happy with with any of our other finalists as well. Yeah, it sounds like a like a crazy challenge to get to uh, you know two or, or three finalists from seventy five. You were saying phenomenal ones. Um, yeah. When when do you expect to award uh, new grants? Uh, hopefully, really soon. Tom and I are working on putting together another call for applications. We're trying to time this. We haven't actually um, publicly launched our app yet. Uh, we were waiting till after the election, and, and uh, I mean, it's available for download right now, but we haven't marketed it at all, and we're hoping to combine a new call for applications with the release of the app. Uh, so it'll, it'll happen soon. And, you know, one thing that we've talked about, too, is trying to find 
partner organizations, be them media outlets or NGOs uh, or foundations who have an interest in telling, you know, global health, international development stories to see if they do like a matching grant to, uh, so, you know, if we have, you know, $1,000 to give away, maybe they'll match that with another thousand, uh, which, you know, that's, that's, that's real money that could support some really good reporting. So, uh, that's something we're, we're exploring right now. So the difference between, I guess, what you guys are doing and like something like Pulitzer, um, you know, the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting or International Reporting Project is you're focusing on really getting, uh, developing world based journalists or or how would you differentiate it it's i mean we 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 certainly want both but i would say that um you know this is is what we're hoping to be kind of an iterative or, or growing process and and so um you know it's it's a continuous exploration into how to answer the question, which I think is the fundamental uh, question that, that I know motivates me personally, but I, but really I think is what also motivates Dawn's itself, is you know, what are ways to access and share uh, and support more journalism and storytelling that's related to um, the humanitarian field, so aid and development and human rights and all these things. Because, I mean, for, for me, it is, it is a, an immensely important endeavor that a lot of money, a lot of time, and a lot of resources are spent on. And frankly, in my, to me, the, the, the reporting has been woeful. Um, we have a very, very narrow sighted picture that's presented to us as, as, you know, I'll say even American consumers mm-hmm. as to what's happening in, um, given countries, you know, there are very few stories talking about the flooding in Nigeria there are very few stories talking about the Sahel crisis, which has been going on for a while. You know, it wasn't until basically, you know, Anderson Cooper and company had showed up in the Horn of Africa that it became a story last year. These are ongoing things, and there are responses that are happening all year long, and they're not being covered adequately. And so, you know, how, how do we get it out there? How do we get the, the, the quality reporting that exists and the people that can do it? Get them the ability to to tell these stories and provide the platform. And so for us, it's it's twofold: it's funding it and then actually sharing it. And so I think what differentiates us, like partially from maybe the Pulitzer Center or others, is that some of their goal is is to get that funding out and have those stories told, and then it goes to other places. And and for us, you know, that might be a part of it. But we also want to bring those stories to people and bring the quality stuff that other people are writing. We you know we want to champion that. There's, there's good work being done, but it's all over the place. So let's, you know, find ways to get it, get it together and, and show that this very complex and, uh, confusing field sometimes of, uh, humanitarianism is, is very dynamic and, and there's just so much to be told. Mark, do you have anything to add to that? Because that actually got to um, a question I was going to ask about when you track the news as closely as you guys do. You know, you sometimes see patterns or trends emerge um, in terms of how these issues are covered. I wonder, I wonder, Mark, if there's if there's anything that you might add to what Tom said. Um, yeah, well, in in terms of of uh, spotting trends. Yeah. One thing that 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 we see uh, is that local news sources, particularly in Africa, um, tend to uh, get 
you know, get the story as you would think sort of first. And then it may take like a few days before you see something like Reuters, uh, you know, reporting on it or AFP reporting on it. Mm -hmm. Then after a few days of AFP or Reuters reporting on it, then you'll get, um, you know, a news magazine like Time magazine writing a story on it or the New York Times, uh, writing a story on, uh, on it. Um, and you know, you, you can sort of, you can track the progression of the story, you know, uh, you know, the New York Times will be reporting on something that a week ago, um, like the Kenyan Daily Star reported it on. Um, so you, you can sort of follow the, the news from its, you know, its, its first iteration to the time that it's been filtered by a Western outlet. And that's kind of an interesting thing. And we can sort of predict what would be sort of the quote unquote big stories, uh, to emerge because we're, we're reading a lot of these local sources, sources. That's, that's, I think, kind of interesting. And and one example actually is playing out today is New York Times is finally covering this uh, very concerning dengue fever outbreak that's been in India. Mm-hmm. The Indian newspapers have been reporting on this for well over a month. Uh, I would I would say going back even further. Um, it's been a really big problem in Delhi, and now it's kind of spreading out further. It's just hitting today. It is hitting New York Times. It'll be included in in the dawn side just that goes out today. Um, but this has been a developing story for a while. And so, and we've seen this kind of rolling along. And so, I mean, that, that to me is, is this prime example of, of the, there's actually the, the news is there, the reporting's there, but the, the capacity for some to get to that information is sometimes, you know, either lacking or slightly lagging. And, uh, you know, hopefully we can, be a little more towards the front line of, of a story such as that. Um, another example would be the, the cholera outbreak that was in um, Sierra Leone. Um, that took a while for for more traditional sources to start picking up um, a couple of weeks after, even when the, the big NGOs were talking about it. Yeah. Another good example of that, I think, is the sectarian violence in Rakhine State, uh, Myanmar. That is something that a lot of the uh, diaspora papers and, and uh, online news sites uh, were writing about uh, that the mainstream media didn't pick up to like you know several days later. Uh, ju- just to play devil's advocate for a minute, um, you know, w- I feel like editors uh, might respond saying you know that their audiences wouldn't care about the story until it becomes bigger. H- how would you respond to that? You know, saying that th- that yeah. the time at which they pick up on the story, it's yeah. you know, become larger and had more international implications. Yeah, I mean that's probably true for New York Times readers, but not for Don's Digest subscribers. I mean they are subscribed to our service because this is the kind of news that they deeply you know care about. Sure, but I, but I think I guess as a critique on. Uh, U.S. media in general, would you say that that's that that's valid? That they're generally picking up on stories at the point that they can they become important to their audiences. You know, I guess if we just take it away from Dawn's and because you were sort of mentioning this in the context of um, uh, you know this being a, a, a an issue with um, U.S. media coverage. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 um, I think one thing to definitely to, to at least point out is, is it's not, um, you know, definitely don't, are not trying, or I'm not trying to make a, um, a critique of the way that, let's say, New York Times does the reporting because they, they have their, their certain readership. And so it's going to take like the point of crisis. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're not going to report on the Ebola outbreak 
in um, Uganda and the DRC until there's actual, you know, until it's actually spreading and there are casualties and, and so on and so forth. Um, but what that does, in, in my opinion, is that, that that's then, you know, stunting the, you know, the, the actual development of, of how things, you know, how problems, how crises emerge. You know, oftentimes we get the story when it's at the point of crisis instead of during, you know, throughout the emergence of it. Um, and these are really important in, in the humanitarian field. Um, you know, if we're talking about, let's talk about like, you know, the Horn of Africa last year, you know, FuseNet predicted that there was going to be a drought well before um, things got worse and well before the famine was declared. We knew this was all was happening, but then the reporting didn't happen until there was actually that declaration of famine. Um, and so it's it's more of filling a gap. It's saying that there's here here let's present more of this information. Let's let's help people who are outside understand that these are developing stories, and then also meet the need of people who are actually inside of the humanitarian sphere, if you will, um, see these things as they're developing. And so it's kind of in the two needs mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. to is to provide and and hopefully shift this understanding and and expand to see that you know that that these are you know, crises that are even acute are still developing. And, and we even know that when we're talking about a flooding in Pakistan, that that's a, a cyclical or almost annual thing. And so it's a crisis when it happens, but there are measures that can and, and should and need to be taken and, and stuff that's going on related to it all the time. Um, and, and that kind of starts to fill in this picture of, of how, you know, NGOs are working, how countries are working, how development is happening and, and all of that. And so I mean, maybe that's getting a little bit away from your question, but, but it's, it's, you know, I think that it's seeing ourselves as, as filling in the picture a bit more. Um, it's almost like one of those, uh, those puzzle pictures where they're like slowly revealing the pieces. And, and right now, when we talk about humanitarianism, we only have a couple pieces revealed. There's a lot more to be seen. And so we hope that we can kind of pull a few more of those away. Sure, sure. Okay, so final question. Uh, it's going to be a little bit of a difficult one. But if you had to choose like one news source, and I'm not going to say, I guess, that you that you couldn't live without or something, but something that's more like an up-and-coming uh, news source where you get like lots of really good quality information that maybe goes under the radar a bit, what, what would that source be? That is a really good question. Under the <laughs> I'm, I'm trying I had, to think. Had never, had never actually considered that. Um, or I guess it could be even like, like a blogger or something like that. Yeah. But I'm, I'm wondering if over the like last couple months, there's there's someone who who has been onto these bigger stories, you know, earlier or something like that. Well, I mean, I I, I will. Um, uh, Alex Thurston writes the Sahel blog, and for for stuff that's happening in Mali and Niger and Nigeria and that kind of greater Sahel region, he is just amazing. Um, and, and he has really provided fantastic context for, um, everything ranging from the, um, militants in Northern Mali to negotiations with Boko Haram in Nigeria and, you know, and, and really everything in between, uh, he is, um, Alex is researching his PhD on, on Nigeria, I should add, and he's just really plugged in 
really on top of the news, does a great job pulling in that information. Um, so for he's he's one of the sources that that I think is is fantastic. Um, so he would be he would. It's hard to say one person, but he would he's on my list certainly towards the top. Yeah, no, and I, I deliberately gave you a, a challenging question, but I was curious how you'd answer it. So, and I'll definitely link that recommendation um, on the podcast on the website. Mark, what about you? Um, I mean, I, I, you know, obviously endorse uh, Tom's uh, praise of Alex Thurston. The, the, um, but what he sort of represents is that sort of person who's knowledgeable about a particular subject area, a particular re, uh, region. And, um, you know, there, there are other sort of Alex Thurston's for different parts of the, of the globe. Um, for Horn of Africa issues, uh, she's not a reporter herself, but she's tied into the, uh, the, the, the diaspora community is, uh, Semhara Arya. She, uh, she, you know, is, her Twitter feed is a helpful sort of aggregation of important news, uh, out of the Horn of Africa. And you, and you know, that there are people like that for different regions, uh, who talk about, uh, you know, different issues. Another source, it's not necessarily under the radar, but, you know, we get a lot of our news from, uh, press releases from, uh, OCHA. The UN's humanitarian affairs office, because they're all over the world and they are, you know, on the ground in a lot of these places. And same with uh, MSF. Their news releases or press releases are really useful fountains of information about what's going on, the nitty gritty on the ground. And so, you know, you'll see a lot of the news releases from NGOs, uh, to be particularly helpful. Uh, so, you know, and, and, and sort of inform our understanding of some of the trends in in these global hotspots. Great. Well, uh, good recommendations there. And and like I said, I will link them. And, um, yeah, thank you both for uh, joining me this evening um, (laughs) and hope you can get an early night in this uh, Mm -hmm. post-election haze. (laughs) Great. Well, thank you. Thanks so much, Jacqueline. Yeah, it was fun. Um, Okay, take care, guys. Thanks. Bye-bye.